Hello, listeners. We invite you to sharpen your swords and your minds and join hosts Sam and Clay each week as they delve into the historical context, leadership, and tactics surrounding significant battles and campaigns throughout time. Welcome, welcome to, to the, the Art of War. War. All right, well, welcome back, guys. I'm Sam. And I'm Clay. And today we're going to be continuing our epic little saga of Alexander the Great, and we're going to be doing the Battle of Gagamela. Yep, so let's take it back to our podcast last week where we talked about the siege of Tyr and Gaza. So Alexander and the Macedonian forces just had a successful campaign through Phoenicia and into Egypt, right? Yeah, and he's now successfully secured every coastal city from uh, Thrace, from Greece, from the Levant, from Egypt every single coastal city on the Mediterranean. And this is like super important to his, his overall strategy because he's got to feed and water, you know, 50,000 troops that are so far from home. So his whole strategy of taking all these coastal cities now has given him such a benefit that he's able to uh, bring supplies to his troops. Now they're, they're sitting pretty, they, they have all the resources they need and now they can just start their journey into the heart of Persia. Right, so, and one thing you have to remember is that one of the biggest threats to Alexander and the Macedonian forces was the very strong Persian navy at the time. But since Alexander has been so successful at capturing all these port cities, the Macedonian navy has become very strong, and so the Persian navy isn't as much of a threat anymore, which is huge. Yeah, and they have like legitimately no way to get back into the Mediterranean. They could launch, you know, a, a counter offensive, try to retake these these cities but it would be such a a journey to go all the way around to get back in the Mediterranean so that yeah Alexander's pretty much now secured his his uh his flank he's he's got no fear of being outmaneuvered by the Persians anymore now he can just go straight in yep Yep. so during this time he spends about three months in Egypt just um resting his men and recuperating and getting them well rested and fed and ready for to continue on to the campaign. Also during this time, he goes down on a little weekend trip to visit the Oracle of Amon, which was like this uh, kind of niche god at the time. Um, it was like a, a goat god or something like that. So he visits the Oracle of Amon, and there he is told that he's actually the son of Amon. So at this point, he believes that he, or he's actually been told that he is a demigod. So he believes that he's a demigod from here on out. Yeah, and he's and at the time he's doing that, he's twenty five years old. It's been three, four years since he started his his campaign, and he's done feats that nobody has could even have dreamed of. His father Philip did not think that this was a possibility. He thought capturing Persia was, you know, it was a dream, but something that wasn't realistic. And then Alexander comes in there, twenty one year old, and takes half of the Persian Empire pretty much. And now he's about to go into a battle to decide the new. Uh, leader of asia it's just wild so the, he, he he probably did believe himself to actually be a demigod you know and that just confirms oh, yeah. it right oh, there yeah. he, and he, throughout the whole he's, campaign he's very religious and he definitely shows that and in some of the contemporary accounts from the time many people describe him as very much embracing this demigod status and dressing like gods and using a bunch of the symbols of of different gods so he's very into that yeah and so i guess let's Let's now set up what's been happening on Darius' right, side. Right, right. So Darius now, during the siege of Tyr and Gaza, he's been building up a new army. 
and this time he's trying to rectify the errors and mistakes that he made at the Battle of Issus. So he's trying to equip his soldiers with much better equipment, longer lances, better swords, and he's trying to train them more so they're not as easy to rout as they were at the Battle of Issus. Yeah, and you know you gotta you gotta understand that prior to to Alexander's campaign into Persia, the con like the common strategy for uh, the the Persian military was that if a king of Persia needed troops, he would have a a basically a troop tax. He would go to all the satraps, all the corners of his his empire, and he would say, "I tax you." like 10,000 men and they'd have to deliver these men. And the majority of the time these were just, you know, serfs or peasants. They, they weren't they weren't military trained at all. They were just citizens of the Persian Empire and they would show up completely untrained. So now Darius is realizing that's not really working against this extremely well-trained <laughs> army of the Macedonians. These phalanxes they're, they're they've been at war for 4 or 5 years, some of them longer than that. And he's realizing that's not going to work. So he's actually trying to put in some effort to to change the, his, his strategy militarily. And he's also employing some form of uh, diplomacy, which you don't see from you know Persian god kings ever, really. But he, he is trying to, at this towards the end of this campaign, he's trying to negotiate with Alexander to maybe end it in a more peaceful manner than in a violent way. Right, right. So he's, at, we saw at the end of the Battle of Issus, that Darius sends a somewhat of a treaty to Alexander, trying to negotiate a way for Darius to get back his family that was captured after the battle, and then Alexander would get the land west of a certain point. And Alexander said no to that. And so this time, Darius tries to be a little bit more, um, a little bit more generous with the treaty. So this time, he offers Alexander um, a hand in marriage to his daughter. And basically the opportunity to split the Air empire, the Persian empire, directly in half with Darius. Since Alexander would be a son-in-law, he would rule half the empire and Darius would rule the other half. Yeah. And Alexander, just like the first attempt at negotiations, he just says, no, just not. Nah, I'm not, I'm not down with that. And he continues on his push, push into yeah. Asia. And apparently in his correspondence, Alexander responded to Darius and he just said that um, the alternative was he, he would let Darius keep control of the Persian Empire, but Darius had to be like subjective to Alexander. So Darius would kind of be a puppet head of state at that point, which is hugely, you know, dishonorable to him. And it was kind of like a middle finger from Alexander. And then Alexander's other option was meet me on the battlefield and we'll settle this with battle. Yeah. And uh, Julius and uh, Curtius, they both claim that the reason that Alexander had such a, a like rude response to Darius was that the, in the first attempt to uh, negotiate to get his family back, Darius kind of said in a very rude manner, mm -hmm. like basically, you're going to give me back my family. You know, you, that's what you're going to do. And he didn't, he didn't have any offers other than the, the base stuff. He didn't, include any talents or any actual payment or ransom he just said give me my family back so alexander's just maybe he's taking that to heart and he's trying to give him back what he, who he was given but now he's just said you know diplomacy is not for me I, I alexander the great i'm not going to settle for half of an empire when i can have mm -hmm. the entire thing which right? is kind of crazy when you think about it because this this negotiation this treaty that darius offers is really good and 
um, some of the other companions, Parminian in particular, urge Alexander to take this treaty because, you know, they've been fighting for years now in unknown territory and the campaign ahead of them is leading into territory where the Macedonians have never even been to their maps. They don't have maps of, of the area that they're going to be going into, into Syria, I believe. Yeah. And also what's interesting about, about this too, another point you got to, you got to take into account is that uh, prior to going actually into, uh, you know, the current day Iraq, per, the Persian empire, these, these cities they were taking for the most part, they were, you know, they were under Persian rule, but they were, they weren't completely resistant to a transition of power. They, they liked the fact that there was a, uh, a very liberal king that was taken over Alexander the Great. So, you know, you see in Egypt and you see in the, through the Levant and Thrace, they're, they're pretty happy with the fact that Alexander has, has freed them from Persian control. Right. But now that he's moving into Persia, these cities aren't as willing to, to, uh, be taken control of so it's going to be even more of a, a difficult journey because you know he's he only has has had two or three sieges that were really long and arduous which was Halicarnassus and uh gaza and tear but all the other ones basically just gave up immediately and let him in right but now that he's pushing into persia that's that's not going to be the, the case a lot of them are going to put up fights mm-hmm. right right so darius has his answer from alexander that it's going to go to battle So Darius um, starts strategizing in a way. He sets his base of operations at the city of Arbella, which is this heavily fortified heavily fortified city. And then he picks a location where he wants to face Alexander, Um, a location that's going to be much beneficial to the Persian forces and their immense cavalry, um, as opposed to the Battle of Issus, where the cavalry was very constrained. And that might have been one of the reasons why they were defeated so quickly. Yeah, in majority of the, like, or in all of the previous battles, it was the Persian forces that were making the attack on the Macedonians. They were they were moving on them, and now Darius has set up a situation where the the uh, Macedonian forces have to make a move on the Persian forces. So it's opposite now, and that's way more beneficial for an army that's as large as Darius's. They get to just sit and encamp, rest themselves, while a smaller force makes their way, you know, to the battlefield. So he chooses this field near the village of Gagamela where he wants to fight Alexander. And so he begins preparation there, making it a suitable battlefield. And um, then he has to ensure that Alexander is actually going to meet him on the battlefield. And so he wants to monitor the Macedonian forces location. And so he sends the satrap of Babylonia, Mazias, as in his own army to um, kind of monitor Alexander and try to, uh, yes. I believe he tries to, He's supposed to prevent Alexander from crossing the rivers to get to Babylon. Yeah, yeah his, his, his main task was to ensure that Alexander had a difficult time crossing the Euphrates. And if, if he couldn't stop Alexander from crossing the Euphrates, then to implement the original advice that the Persian Empire was given, which is to raise and burn all of their territories to make the journey to the battlefield as strenuous and difficult as possibly could could be for the macedonians and that's what he does he he spends a good portion of his his time away from the persian main force uh, burning and destroying all of the uh, major cities and, and villages across from the euphrates so the macedonians can't really get any resources at all yeah so the macedonians come up to the euphrates river and all they see is basically scorched fields 
So there's no way that they're going to be able to get supplies going down the Euphrates River. And the Euphrates River is the most direct route to Babylon, which is what Alexander wants to capture next. So instead, they have to go up north a little bit and cross the Tigris River, which is a much harder river to cross. Yeah. And what Darius originally assumed would be Alexander's path was to just cross straight through what uh, ancient Mes- where ancient Mesopotamia was, go just across the plains and, and hop over the, the Tigris and, and make uh, contact with the, the main army just in a straight mm-hmm. line to ensure that it was less time out in this desert. It was, you know, if they had no resources, they would, tr- they would make the shortest route possible. That's what Darius assumed he was going to do, but Alexander chooses to take the much, much longer northern route, which is way ar- more arduous, but ensures that they're not in a desert and also they had access to some cities that they could they could pillage and some some resources because that and Mazias didn't go to the north because they weren't expecting that route. Yeah, so Mazias leaves the part of the Tigris River where Alexander crosses unguarded pretty much um, because he doesn't expect him to come there and he expects the, the Tigris River to be too hard to pass. Um, and, but that Macedonians actually are able to pass it without many casualties. Though from the accounts, it does seem like it was really challenging, but this was a, you know, a pretty wasted opportunity on the sizes part, right? Yeah, I mean, if if they had seen that coming, then they would have been able to stop the the Macedonians from crossing the river, because as as you stated, it was a very difficult crossing for the Macedonians. So if there was just even a, a small contingent of troops that were waiting on the banks, it would have been very difficult to make it across. They would have had to take some other route or or engineered some some bridge of some kind so yeah it's it's a big a big mistake from Mazias and Darius to allow them to take that northern route yeah and so when Alexander actually crosses the river successfully um, it says that they actually encountered a small band of cavalry from the Persian forces it's almost like a scouting unit and they completely killed every single one of them and then when word of that reached the Persian army, it caused apparently a lot of unrest among the different soldiers, which is kind of strange because it was such a small contingency of cavalry that they had no chance against the Macedonians and they were just kind of, you know, not really going to stand a chance anyways, but um, it appears to have an effect on the Persian army. Yeah, I think it was also the fact that they didn't expect uh alexander be there so quickly Mm, because that's also a a very a very big part of the narrative of alexander he had a very quick moving strategy where he didn't he didn't rest for a long period of time he would just keep going battle to battle to battle to city to city to city and he'd do all these incredible you know conquering in in the stint of a year which is crazy so they probably weren't expecting him to have, have been there as quickly as he was especially taking the northern route you know and that was their scouting party, so they they didn't they weren't they didn't have much information from it. So when it gets wind that their scouting party has been killed and he's right there coming up on them, probably probably threw him in a little a little tizzy. Yeah, that's a good point. I can see that. So the Macedonians are advancing towards the battlefield of Gagamela. Um, Alexander has intelligence that the Persian army and Darius is waiting there, so he's pretty much game for for the battle. Um, so he's advancing there and. They also get intelligence from spies from the Persian side that there's a bunch of traps laid out for them, like snares and stuff like that on the battlefield. So they're really well prepared to face that kind of opposition. Yeah, and and so to set up kind of what's 
what it's looking like for the Macedonians, right? They, they've just crossed a river, they engaged in battle, and then they marched to the actual battlefield. So, in all aspects, they are unfavored. They, they are meeting a force that's bigger than them, they're meeting on a battlefield of their opponent's choice, they just crossed a river and have not been able to rest for a long period of time, and now they're they're coming to a flat battlefield, right? So that means that if, if they were to arrive at this battlefield and try to encamp, and then Darius chooses, hey, no, let's not let them encamp, and then just run straight at them, then they have to fight, you know, not well-rested, without sufficient sufficient resources, you know, maybe not in the correct formation, and it's just, it, look, it looks really bad it coming into a situation yeah, like that. Yeah, that is very true. Um, but then what actually happens is that there's a pretty important hill overlooking the battlefield that Messias and his army are supposed to be defending. But when Messias hears word and sees the Macedonian army advancing, he pretty much instantly retreats without any fight. So the Macedonians are able to take the high ground of the battlefield, and this gives them the opportunity to rest successfully without having to worry about any surprise attacks from the Persians. And what it causes on the Persian side is a lot of unrest because now the Persians have to worry about a night attack. So yeah. they're not getting rest at night because Darius orders them to stay alert. Yeah, there's actually an account from Arian that states that they actually stood in formation throughout the night. They didn't even set up camp and have have watch and, and maybe be ready in, in their, their military garb. They legitimately stood in formation through the night, which is... Probably pretty exhausting. They weren't heavily yeah. armed, but you know that's still exhausting. So, yeah, it turns completely in the favor of Alexander for at least in those 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 characteristics and aspects uh, because Mosiah's giving that hill. He was told and he was tasked chiefly to defend that hill, and then he he gave it very quickly and returned to Darius's main force. Yep. So that's two times that Messiah has made rather poor decisions. Yeah. And so, yeah, now, now we're, you know, there's, now let's get into, I guess, the numbers of the, the, the two forces. And, you know, just like we, we've said in the, the previous podcasts, the, the Macedonian side is, it's reliable numbers, but the Persian side, the historical accounts we have that for them are, you know, they're, they're yeah, very wild, fantastical. They're most likely not true. So the, the Persians are claimed to have had, mil, uh, you know, a million, a million, 200,000 troops uh, at the ready on the battlefield, but more realistic numbers would be around 100,000, 125,000, the same kind of uh, size as the Battle of Issus. Uh, and they would be, they're, they're mainly comprised of just just basic infantry that are armed with with no body armor, no helmet, uh, an eight-foot spear, and, and a, like a wicker shield, right? And that would be the about 60,000 of them. And then... Mm -hmm. Their real, the real important part of the Persian uh, army is their cavalry. They would have, they had about forty thousand cavalry, uh, right. which would have been commanded by Darius, Bezus, and and Mazias. and then they would have had a small bit of of uh, Greek mercenaries, like two to three thousand, and about ten thousand uh, Persian immortals that would have been comprising his his body or Darius's bodyguard formation, right right in the center, and then. They had their scythe chariots, which was a big part of their army, which was the reason that they chose the battlefield and took the preparations they did. And then they had 15 war elephants, but we don't actually get to see those. Yeah, no account combat. actually lists the war elephants being used in battle, which is a little unfortunate. Yeah, they they were uh, pillaged. They were taken after the battle. They were in the encampment. They were 
geared for combat, but for some reason they chose not to use them in the battle. They're just chilling in the back. Yeah, they're just up like the little guys just chilling in the back. But yeah, and the Macedonians about the same as before. They're they're comprised of uh, phalanx, hoplite, and the companion guard of Alexander, and then uh, the Thracian infantry on the left and right flanks, and then the Parmenian Parmenian controls the other cavalry unit. So they right. and they're about fifty thousand strong, about the same as the previous instances. Yeah. And one of the main components of Parmenian's cavalry is the Thessalian cavalry, yeah. which yeah. are very skilled and highly trained um, soldiers. Yeah, and yeah, that's so that they're they're you know they're looking at odds oh, not in their favor. The Macedonians, that is, they're right, and that's that's always the main point when we're talking about these battles because the numbers do vary wildly. But the main point is that the Macedonians are always outnumbered. Pretty heavily too. One one in like one to three, one to two. They're usually not in an advantageous position based off the numbers, but doesn't seem to matter for them, does it? Nope, nope. So we'll see. So how does the battle start off? So Alexander supposedly wakes up a little bit, a little bit past noon. You know, he oversleeps. They were planning a, a morning attack, but Alexander, you know, he's Alexander. So he he oversleeps and then he makes it to the battlefield and they choose to get into formation around two or three o'clock and uh oh an interesting point i guess we should state is that we actually know the exact date of this battle because of lunar formations mm-hmm. uh, there was an eclipse reported on i it was it was several days back when they were they were crossing the euphrates of the tigris and if you were able to do calculations to, to how long it took them to cross and and uh the date that they saw the eclipse it would have been October first. October first is when this battle transpired, which is interesting. You don't usually get that in ancient ancient sources. They don't really have the exact right. date of the battle. So yeah, they they it's you know it's supposedly a very a very bright day with you know a very dusty, humid environment, and they they make it onto the battlefield uh, in formation. Darius doesn't launch an attack, and Alexander is able to actually formulate a, a very good formation, which aids him in this battle. Uh, which Darius also shouldn't have let him get into that formation. But he he lines his troops up in a very interesting formation. He puts his his center at a diagonal along with Parmenian on the left flank and Alexander on the right flank. They're all in a very weird 45-degree angle where Alexander mm-hmm. is at the top of the diagonal. He's he's at the, the lead, and he's got his, his cavalry unit facing the center of the of Darius's troops which is odd because he's not trying to match the right flank and, and Parmenian is far left of the the uh, uh, of Darius's right flank so they they have this weird weird positioning and uh, Darius I guess didn't really think that anything about that but as he's as he's created that formation he's slightly trying to move to the right right he's trying to get his troops a little bit off the battlefield to the right so he, he can he can match both the center and and Parmen, or uh, and Darius's left flank and I guess I guess we should include why why he wanted to get off the battlefield right yeah so the battlefield Darius had prepared it for the use of his chariots and his cavalry so it's basically flattened um, but so Alexander by going all the way out to the battlefield goes to the area where there's rocks and, and things, so it isn't flat anymore. So the chariots chasing him aren't going to get around as easily. And this is kind of to give the illusion that he's opening up his um, middle forces for a push by Darius's cavalry. When, in fact, what is he actually doing? 
Well, yeah, so he's he's going right, right, which Darius sees, and then Darius goes, okay, we can't let him get off the battlefield. So he sends Bezus, who's leading uh, the left flank, which is about 20,000 cavalry. He sends those to meet Alexander, so he can't move his troops more to the right. So they, they engage in combat, and they're just, you know, they're just fighting for a while. And it doesn't look like it's really going in anyone's favor at the time. And Darius goes, all right, okay, so what we should do now is we should send the scythe chariots onto the center, because this is perfect. They're in the, the perfect position. We stopped them from moving right. Send the chariots down the middle, and we'll we'll send my uh, my his largest cavalry force, which is about thirty thousand, which was led by Mazias on their right flank, would would meet Parmenian. So then you would just have you know an overwhelming odds number. It would just it would go in Darius's favor. So that's what he does. He sends the scythe chariots at the same time that he sends Bezus out, and you know the the scythe chariots. We're supposed to make a huge impact. They're supposed to completely, you know, destroy the center and allow for Darius to, to move forward and make contact. But from the accounts we have, uh, supposedly they did they didn't do a lot. They what what actually happened was that the main center of the Macedonians were phalanx and hoplites, and this scythe tactic, these these chariots, they were pretty a pretty archaic strategy. So these phalanx, these heavily trained, heavily educated soldiers knew exactly what to do when a chariot was coming at them. So what they actually did, interestingly, they, they would split their groups. They're about 256 per unit. They'd split their groups in half, yeah. and they let the chariots just run straight through. So the phalanx and the hoplites didn't take any damage, but the Thracian infantry uh, and the other Greek infantry in the back that weren't as well armored, they took the brunt of the damage. But since the chariots didn't make it into really the center and damage the the important center, they didn't really accomplish much. So yeah, they didn't have too much of an effect. And also the the Macedonian phalanx apparently employed a tactic where they banged their spears on their shield to disorient the horses leading the side yeah. chariots. And you know when you think about it, because it did seem like Darius was kind of relying on this to be one of the key changes from battle of isis was having these scythe chariots to wreak a lot of havoc and i guess you can see envision where if it was where they were going against a similar force a very untrained kind of you know just regular citizens composing an army uh the scythe chariots would probably be really effective against something like that but with this highly trained macedonian army that's been fighting for so long it just does not really have much of an effect yeah, they, they just kind of brush it off, and then the chariots get pretty much wiped out. A few of them got killed just on the initial push, and then the rest get slaughtered, getting through the actual the the center. So then, right. so so it looks it looks bad on on the the center for Darius because his strategy doesn't work at all. But there's still hope as uh, Mazias on the on Parmenian's flank is overwhelming him. He's just he's absolutely destroying him, but. But Parmenian, like Clay said, he has some of the best cavalry at his disposal. So even though they're getting they're getting almost enwrapped, they're they're losing ground very quickly. They're holding right, and this is all part of Alexander's plan. He wants Parmenian to look like he's in a situation where he's about to lose, he's about to rout. Right, and, and this is uh, similar to the Battle of Issus, where, yeah. where Parmenian is very much on the defensive and having to hold back a significantly stronger force. And what's interesting too is Messias is is winning and pushing back Parmenian's forces, but he also sends like a contingency of his own cavalry to the Macedonian <laughs> camp at yeah. one point. He just sends them away from the battlefield to the Macedonian camp to maybe try to retrieve the Persian captives. 
Yeah, like Darius's family members. And I mean, it, it probably is a testament to the fact that uh, Mazias most likely thought that he was just about to win the battle if he's sending some of his troops to go and make, you know, yeah. an attempt at grabbing somebody at the encampment to maybe gain some favor with Darius. But yeah, it, it you know, that was, that was probably a mistake. So then Alexander, he's he's on the right flank and they, they've been in, they've been in, you know, a, a fierce combat for the majority of the battle. They were the first ones to engage each other. And since it, it didn't really look like anything was transpiring, but that's also part of Alexander's plan. He's actually has the right flank completely under his control. He's just, he destroyed Bezos on the right flank. And he, he knows that at any point he can route that, that flank. And he, uh, he's, he's holding long enough so that he can convince Darius that the battle's going in Darius's favor. So all the while that Parmenian is losing on the left flank and, and Alexander's in combat on the right, he's having his center his uh you know phalanx and, and hoplites move more to the right move towards alexander and all the while that's happening this larger and larger gap is opening up between parmenian and the center and parmenian's always already losing in the eyes of of the persians mm -hmm. so darius goes okay let's just cut this off real quickly let's just one fell swoop in this battle so he sends his entire center all his his entire important center he sends his greek mercenaries and his immortals which right. comprises his bodyguards he sends them to go take advantage of that opening gap that alexander's made which he sees as a blunder which well, at this point because at this point darius has been playing very defensively yeah and it's just been the cavalry fighting so he's been very much holding back and so now he pretty much advances the majority of his force his ground troops yeah, so then he's, he's all right, okay, it, Alexander's looks like he's still engaged in combat and Parmenian's losing, so let's engage the center. We have superior numbers, and let's enwrap both both flanks. And Alexander was planning for that. That's exactly what he wanted. He wanted Darius to send his, his bodyguards and his defensive units to the center, and all the while he's holding this route from happening on the right flank, and the instant he sees that Darius is no longer has protection... He routes Bezus and he charges straight in with his companion cavalry into Darius's uh, actual like cavalry detachment where he himself is, and Darius it was not expecting it all, and and the majority of the troops around him just immediately rout, which, you know, yeah. According to the accounts, uh, Alexander threw a javelin at Darius but barely missed him and hit one of his chariot drivers. And then the surrounding Persian troops believed that Darius had fallen in battle, so they started to rout. And then the troops around them started to rout, you know, kind of like a domino effect. But while this is all happening around the center of the Persian forces and Darius, Messias doesn't know anything of this is happening. So he's still pressuring Parmenian pretty heavily. Yeah, and see, that's one that's one interesting thing about ancient battles is that you know they don't they didn't have cell phones they didn't have any technology that could allow them to yeah, transmit no messages or anything. and they're they're a good distance from each other so other than seeing something happening there's no real way for Mazias to know that that is that's transpired so he thinks that it's still in you know the persian favor he's still engaging parmenian as best he can true and a good side note here is that we have to remember that the battlefield is is super dusty so the vision would be yeah. very obscured so it would be very hard for messiahs to see anything what's going on besides what's directly in front of him yeah because darius prior to the battle he cleared out every tree on the battlefield pretty much and then he actually had them dig out ruts 
to flatten out the ground. So this is all, you know, newly turned dirt that once a, a horse's hoof, hoof hits, it just goes flying into the air. And there's hundreds of thousands of soldiers on the battlefield. So it's just this giant apocalyptic dust storm. So there, yeah, yeah there's, crazy there's no way. Yeah, there's no way for Mazias to really, you know, know what's happening. He's the only one that's in a in a in a advantageous position. Every yeah. every other bit of Darius's army has pretty much been eradicated. So Alexander at this point is per- pursuing Darius because D- Darius is fleeing the battlefield, having his nearby soldiers routed. So he has to get out of there to save his own life. Alexander wants Darius's blood because that's the only way he can truly be the conqueror of Asia, and Meanwhile, Parminian is suffering heavy losses and almost about to um, rout to Mazias' forces. So Parminian apparently sends messengers to ask Alexander for help, right? Yeah. And now Alexander's at the, you know, a crossroads. He can, he can choose to pursue Darius and chop the head off the Hydra and take rightful ownership of the Persian Empire without any, like, contest for power. Or he can choose to go save his, you know, his his lifelong friend, mentor, you know, mock father uh, that's been by his side through this entire campaign. And he chooses, he chooses the latter. He goes and saves, saves Parminian. Even though there's differing accounts of what actually transpired. Uh, some state that he... Uh, yeah, but we'll, we'll stick with that account because yeah. it makes Alexander seem like a good it, friend. Yeah. There's a lot of things that make him look like a bad guy, but yeah, that makes him sound like a good guy. So he goes back and he he successfully defeats Mazias, and Mazias is, is out of there. Yeah, Mazias flees back to Babylon. Um, so that's pretty much marks the end of the battle. But I do want to go back and touch on one thing that might you know change what actually happened in this battle pretty significantly. And that's the thing we very briefly mentioned before, which was this lunar eclipse that happened a few days before the battle. So what's really interesting about this battle in particular, the Battle of Gagamela, is that ancient Babylonia had very well-preserved and very meticulous texts and observations that they would write down every day based on, you know, astronomical observations. It was called the Astronomical Diaries. And today, I think that's in um, maybe some British museum or something like that. But these, so these texts, basically, astronomers in Babylon or Babylonia would go out every day and just write down what they saw, like the weather or any significant astronomical events. So when this lunar eclipse happened, um, there was a certain parameters that surrounded it, how the like Saturn was apparently visible and Jupiter wasn't, and the way that the wind was blowing. And so it's actually recorded that what they strongly believed was that this marked the end of Darius's reign, pretty much. It was a very bad omen for Darius. It, it marked that a king from the west would come to take control of Asia. And so when the Persian forces saw this lunar eclipse, this is what they believed. They pretty much believed that they were destined to lose this battle. And it might have been destiny for and fate for Alexander, or maybe it was just mere chance but um it's interesting to see these contemporary texts that happened at the same time of the battle basically saying that the persian forces are going to lose in this astronomical diaries they also say that it was the persian troops that deserted darius it wasn't darius that left the battlefield at first it was the troops that left him so it might have been a very different outcome if this lunar eclipse didn't happen after all 
Yeah. Which is pretty insane, actually, when I was reading about these astronomical diaries. It's crazy how these texts are, like, so freaking old. And they just have so much information in them. It's wild. Yeah, it was a, a core part of their culture, which is just insane. It's just so cool to think that, that just that little city in itself had such an interesting thing they did daily that nowhere else did, right? But yeah, so now... At, after the battle, you know, it's been a couple months, but we have to talk about the death of Darius. Yeah. So there's, like, I, I guess I should stop saying it because we say it so many times, but there's differing accounts of what actually transpired. But Darius's plan after leaving the battlefield was the same as after Granicus and Isis, and uh, he, he planned to go and rally another army. He was going to go and tax the, the satraps of of the remaining Persian Empire and get the troops he needed and he was going to meet uh, Alexander in battle again. That's, that's what his plan was. He was going to do it again. Uh, but at this point, the Persian Empire, they're, they're kind of losing faith in Darius because prior to, to this entire campaign happening uh, from Alexander the Great, no Persian king had lost a battle in 200 years. And now this tiny little country of Macedonia has come into the Persian Empire in the stint of four years and taken half of it, half of every bit of the territory, and he's completely and utterly destroyed Darius in these battles. They they don't sustain Macedonia doesn't sustain many losses, and Darius's army always gets slaughtered. So, right. and and a good thing to put this in context too, though, is a court like the the ancient um, accounts also state that Darius was a very good warrior he was yeah. he was a very good warrior and leader and a pretty well-known strategist so the fact that alexander stomped him so hard two times already just really speaks to the fact that alexander and the macedonians are just so much better of a fighting force and so much well trained and so much better at strategizing yeah and all these cities too they get wind of of what <laughs> alexander's been doing to the conquered populations where if someone puts up a fight if somebody resists his his uh his uh attempts at taking control he'll do stuff like crucify entire populations on the beaches of tear yeah. right he's he's a very brutal you know extremely powerful ruler and darius is showing that he's none of the he's he's not he's not as powerful as alexander he can't stop alexander so even Darius's own, you know, loyal satraps are are starting to consider maybe overthrowing him, usurping him, doing something to to negotiate with Alexander to stop this because they don't want to end up like Babylonia or Tyre or Gaza. They they right. want they want. Well, to we end. actually see in battle Babylonia when Alexander goes to capture Babylon, Mazias is there since he is the satrap of Babylonia. So he just fought Alexander at Gagamela. And he chose not to fight at Babylon, and he surrenders the city. Yeah. And Alexander actually reinstates him as satrap. Yeah, and and so all uh, Darius really has now is he's got about ten to twenty thousand troops that he's taking throughout you know Persia from city to city to try to get more and more troops, and he's got Bezus. Bezus is still by his side, but Bezus he he comes to the conclusion that he should either be the new ruler or he should do something in order to stop stop alexander to try to to, to negotiate with him some way and, and and he thinks the way to do that is to put an end to darius to to either 
arrest him, exile him, just make sure that he can no longer control the Persian Empire. So what is said to have happened was that uh, Bezus and some of his his uh, officers attacked Darius, imprisoned him, and threw him in the back of a horse wagon. That That's what, what is stated. And they were, they were planning on bringing him back east somewhere to have a trial or something. Who knows what their actual plan was. There's not much... Yeah, there, there's that. one that I think that's pretty pretty well believed that um, Bezos actually had made contact with Alexander and was offering Darius yeah. to Alexander as like a peace offering pretty much. And all the while though, uh, Alexander has been pursuing these forces. He's had, you know, he has spies all throughout the Persian Empire and he's trying to to get a hold of Darius himself because he wants to put an end to Darius. He wants to consolidate his power as the new king of asia and he is somehow somehow he the bezos gets wind that alexander's nearby or at least this is what is what is said has happened and they make a rash decision to just just kill darius to get rid of him so they stab him they they inflict a mortal wound it's not really stated how he he dies but they inflict a mortal wound and they throw him on the side of the road. Right. And very unceremoniously. Yeah, this very... was their, you know, their king, their, yeah. their god king. And in the end, he's just stabbed in the back of a chariot or a cart and just thrown on the side of the road. Yeah. And so then, uh, I don't, I don't believe Alexander, it was either Parmenion or it was one of his, his officers comes on to the bottle body of Darius. They recognize him. And they bring back the word to Alexander, and Alexander is, he's livid. He's very, he's depressed and livid. He's angry and sad. He wanted to put an end to Darius himself, and also he respected Darius, and he didn't like the fact that he was just, you know, stabbed and cast to the side of the road. So this, you know, pisses Alexander off pretty bad, and he ends up, you know, chasing after Bezos, gets a hold of Bezos, kills Bezos kills all of his his officers and pretty mm-hmm. much all of the army that they had and what he does for darius is it's like wow maybe yeah maybe it's actually a very done. very nice ending to the story of darius that's somewhat tragic but um alexander gives him the burial that's fit for a persian king he he gives a very big celebration and it's very actually um it's very respectful to darius yeah, he gives him like a, a, a typical Persian burial, and he takes him back to Persepolis, which is where a lot of the major Persian kings had gone to rest. And he he treats uh, Darius as as you know an enemy, but one that deserves as much respect as Alexander does. And that's that's kind of interesting about Alexander. He always seems to uh, you know elevate the aristocrats, the the higher ups the royalty above citizens they're not his enemies they're they're more of like a uh someone to tussle with but but not to punish right so because you see that in tier he brutally slaughters off the citizens yeah. and the soldiers but the royalty of tier he treats well and lets go and, without and any again punishment. i think i think it goes a lot into how religious alexander is because the royalty in tier was seen as religious leaders as well and darius is seen as a religious leader um so i think alexander really respects that a lot because that's i don't know something that he's always been into yeah 
and I guess he probably he probably also views them as the the you know the brains behind the operations, the ones who he's actually fighting against. He's not you know he's not he doesn't see the soldiers as anything but soldiers. Yeah, that's that is a good point. But yeah, so ends the chapter of Darius the Third, King of Persia. And that and basically the end of the Persian Empire too. It's now completely under Macedonian control. Yeah. Interestingly, in the same Babylonian astronomical diaries, after this point, they refer to Alexander as king of the world. Yeah. Because the known world at that time was pretty much Persia and and Europe. Yeah, and it's funny that you say that because you know normal person would say, "I am king of the world. That's pretty cool." But Alexander's like, "Yeah, no, I see land over there to the east. Let's go take that too." So he's, he's got <laughs> plans to just keep going. He's not gonna stop. He's gonna keep going, and he does. That's exactly what he does. But he's ended the the chapter of of the Persian Empire contesting the uh, Greek empires. He's now done what his father dreamed of doing of taking over the persian empire he's done it in in five years he's 26 he is 26 and in five years he took down one of the most powerful empires that has ever ruled the world and in such a successful manner too yeah not really suffering any loss at all yeah he had instances where maybe the battle could have not gone in his favor but in in the uh end he always came out of it with very little casualties very little wounded and he was able to just keep going with this small force and just wrecked havoc and one last thing i always have to do my now my rating (laughs) the 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 flaming pig rating and so let's the tactic i'm going to talk about in this one is probably the scythe chariots right because that was probably one of the the key tactics in this battle of Gagamela, yeah. and it did not work that well at all. So this this is going to get a rating of probably I don't know three week old spoiled pork chop. <laughs> you know I would agree with you, but I think Alexander's cleverly planned, uh, you know, Parmenian losing, opening up a gap so that he could attack Darius's gap. I think that kind of elevates it above that. I'd say. I'd say it's like, you know, two, three days from expiring pork. Maybe not three week old, two two days from expiring. Like, yeah. you know, this is still 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 edible. And the choice not to use bat, like war elephants, that's gotta be like oh, the yeah, lowest. Okay. Alright. Alright, I take it back. I take it that's back. That's three I'll, week expiring. Yeah, I'll pork say I'll right say there. it's two weeks. I'll say it's two week. I'll get closer to your rating. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> With that, that war elephants, come on, come on. We gotta have war elephants. That's not cool. That would yeah. be great to talk but about. I'm looking forward to the weeks coming up because we are gonna have war elephants eventually. That's true. It's gonna be exciting. When he starts just taking all these little random countries left and right and some of them employ elephants. Yeah. Tune in next time, guys, and thanks for joining us today. And if uh, you have any comments or want to just talk about this week's podcast, please reach out to us on social media or by email or anything like that. We're always love to hear from you guys. Yeah, and if we made any mistakes, make sure to let us know. And if there's any topic you guys want us to talk about, that'd be that'd be great because you know after we get done with Alexander, we're gonna need something to talk about, and that'd, you know it'd be cool to have an actual what you guys wanted to listen to. Yeah. Yep. And side note, uh, I do believe we have realized that Darius has pronounced Darius, but yeah. uh, yep, here we, we are, we, three we rec- podcasts in. <laughs> we recorded the uh, first the first podcast saying Darius, and then we said, "Wow, we're in too deep. We can't change it now. We've got to stick with Darius." And we also have been calling it the Persian Empire when it's actually the. Uh, see, I can't Arca- even say Arca- 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 
There's our that's our attempts. It's better that we say Persian. It's better that yep. we say Persian. And Darius is dead, so now it doesn't matter. Yes, Darius. Darius is dead. All right. Okay. Well, thanks for watching. <laughs> A little later. Adios. Hi, listeners. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And if you are, make sure to follow us on all of our social medias. You can find our social medias in the description on our Spotify page. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to check out our sister podcast, Gray Skies. Each week, the host Eliza talks about a different national disaster that happened in recent history. And hopefully we're going to be able to collaborate with her. Yeah, so look forward to that.